The Wheel of Crime podcast is a true crime podcast which contains graphic and explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Cold case here in Indiana is now getting national attention tonight after police identify the killer nearly five decades later. Yeah, police in Terre Haute say some new technology helped them solve this case, finally giving the victim's family closure. This started 46 years ago when Indiana State University student Pamela Milam was murdered. Her body was discovered in the trunk of her own car. Police never stopped working on her case despite hitting multiple dead ends. Recent DNA and genealogy tests linked this crime to Jeffrey Lynn Hand, but he was killed by Kokomo police in 1978, six years after the murder. But at least we now know who he is, and he won't hurt anyone again. So for that, we miss you, Pam. Rest in peace. The victim's sister went on to thank the suspect's family for providing the DNA to finally solve this unsolved case. Welcome to the Wheel of Crime Podcast. I'm Megan, your tour guide. This is episode number 12, Cold Cases Solved by DNA Technology. If you want to interact with the show, check out the show notes for all the information on social media and email address and so forth. Tell me how you've been dealing with everything that's been going on in the world right now. Uh, COVID, riots, murder hornets, Tiger King. This is a crazy year, right? Tell me about it. Shoot me an email and I'll read it on the next episode. Okay, we're just going to go ahead and just dive right into this. DNA technology is starting to become a game changer for law enforcement, most especially the use of genetic genealogy. If you've ever followed this development in the news, one of the biggest companies that uses this technology is Parabon Nanolabs. But let's go back just a little bit to find out how this all got started. Now, this is, this is interesting, okay? And yes, don't at me, I did use Wikipedia for this. A little bit. So Wikipedia states that the investigation of surnames in genetics goes back to George Darwin, who is Charles Darwin's son. George used surnames to estimate the frequency of first cousin marriages, probably because his own parents were first cousins, you know, and calculated the expected incidence of marriage between the people of the same surname. 
for the population of London, he found that there was a 1.5 percentage of cousin marrying folks higher among the upper class at 3% to 3.5% and lower among general rural population at 2.25%. The lineage of descendants of uh, Thomas Jefferson were studied in this way too. Have you ever studied your family tree? I did. And it's incredibly interesting what you find out. So how do we get from studying surnames to genetic genealogy? Brian Sykes, who is a molecular biologist at Oxford University, decided to use his own surname as a study uh, and test the new methodology in doing his familial research. His study obtained results by looking at four STR markers on the male chromosome, thus this gave way to using DNA to learn more about a particular family tree. So then Gene Tree was the first company to provide direct-to-consumer DNA testing, but it didn't offer the multi-generational genealogy tests. It was pretty much just, you know, one generation, I think, your generation. In 2001, Gene Tree was purchased by Sorensen Molecular Genealogy Foundation. I butchered that. Let's try this again. In 2001, Gene Tree was purchased by Sorensen Molecular Genealogy Foundation. I did it right that time. A company founded in 1999. It offered free Y chromosome and mitochondrial DNA tests to thousands of people and later Gene Tree returned to genetic testing for genealogy in conjunction with Sorensen, who was eventually brought out bought out by ancestry.com. Hang in there. We're getting there. In 2001, Family Tree DNA was founded by Bennett Greenspan and Max Blankfield and was the first company dedicated to direct-to-consumer testing for genealogy research. In 2007, 23andMe was the first test to offer saliva-based direct-to-consumer genetic testing. I bought my dad one of these tests a few years back and the results were pretty accurate compared to the Family Tree that we had researched. By August of 2019, it was reported that over 300 million people had their DNA tested for genealogical purposes. So after a while, law enforcement began using this technology to track down violent criminals and identify unknown DNA left at crime scenes. GEDmatch and Family Tree DNA allowed law enforcement and Parabon to use their databases for this, pur this very purpose. Because of this, we now know the identity of the Golden State Killer named Joseph James D'Angelo, a former police officer, a.k.a. Original Night Stalker, a.k.a. East Area Rapist, who from 1974 to 1986 murdered over 13 people, raped over 50, and burglarized over 120. We also know the identity of the man who raped and murdered 8-year-old April Tinsley in Fort Wayne, Indiana in 1988. After 30 years... Uh, in 2018, they identified John Miller as her murderer. Without genetic genealogy, it's doubtful that either of these men would have been brought to justice because neither of them had any reason for their DNA to be added to CODIS. And that is the one system or that is the one database that most people draw from. If not for genetic genealogy, the murder of 19-year-old Pamela Milam would never have been solved. Until last year, it was Terre Haute's oldest unsolved case. Honestly, in doing the research here, this case really saddened me. To borrow a term from Nancy Grace, this girl was scrubbed in sunshine. I did most of this research through newspapers.com because it allows me to go back and look at the actual articles that were published in the newspaper as they appeared. Pamela's name came up in the newspapers over and over again. 
And she was the kind of girl we all wanted to be friends with. And she was the kind of girl we all wanted as our daughter. If we had daughters. Pamela Gail Milam was born on May 9th, 1953 to Charles, whose nickname was Hap, and Helen Milam, who were from Richmond, Indiana. She was the second of three girls with an older sister named Charlene and a younger sister named Sheila. The first time her name is mentioned in the newspaper was when she was just three years old in 1956 as part of the Children's Day program at the Second Presbyterian Church, where her and her family attend, attended. Her little sister Sheila, who the family called Sam because those were her initials, was Pam's shadow, wanting to do everything her big sister did. Charles was a successful salesman for Sears and Roebuck Company. Their mother, Helen, was very active in their church, the PTO, and would go on to be the troop leader for the Brownies and Girl Scouts, and her daughters also took active roles in that program. Several articles state that Pam, Pamela was treasurer and eventually president of their, of their little troop, 236. This was a family very tied to their community and by all accounts had a nearly perfect life. They were really living the American dream. Pamela was described by those who knew her as bubbly, happy, and had a ready and beautiful smile. When Pamela was a sophomore, the family moved to Terre Haute and continued to be a large part of the community's social activities as well as church activities. This was after her older sister Charlene's wedding where Pamela was maid of honor. I want to read to you an article that was published in the Terre Haute Tribune Star on November 29, 1970, during Pamela's senior year, and you'll see why here in just a second. The article is, in, is titled, Vi some people call it Vigo, some people call it Vigo. I call it Vigo because that's the name of the guy on Ghostbusters, don't hate me. Uh, this is by Phyllis Rogers, okay? The bubbly personality of Pamela Milam is surpassed only by her ready smile and pleasant attitude. Pam is a senior at Honey Creek High School and an excellent representative of her school in all she does. Pam moved to Terre Haute from Richmond, Indiana just before her sophomore year and immediately plunged into activities at Honey Creek. For three years, she has been the member of the Girls Athletic Association, serving as vice president this year, and Y-Teens, helping on the, the Dessert for Dads, her sophomore year, the fashion show last year, and various fund drives. Fund drives, so like fundraisers. During her junior year, Pam joined the Creative Writing Club and served on the staff of the Anthemion, I'm, Anthemion, Anthemion, I'm going to say Anthemion, Honey Creek's literary magazine. This year, she is the editor of the magazine and the president of creative writing. Music plays an important part in Pam's life, having played clarinet for eight years and alto saxophone this year. This is her third year for playing in the band, as she played in the orchestra last year. Away from school, Pam is still very active. She's a member of her church youth fellowship and was in Girl Scouts for nine years. Sewing and reading are her main hobbies, and she works as a, as a page at the South Branch Library. And this is like a volunteer. After graduation, Pam plans to attend ISU and major in either elementary education, physics, or English. She lives with her parents, Mr. and Mrs. Charles E. Milam, at 1010 Don Lane. Do you understand why I read that? That... That alone speaks volumes. She was so active in everything she did. She excelled. She tried to be the best at everything that she could be, living her best teenage life. She was the class speaker at her high school graduation. 
In her speech, according to an article published by the Terre Haute Tribune on June 5, 1971, Pamela stressed to her graduating class the theme of responsibility for actions as graduates who were pushed out into the world and have to think for themselves, while also paying tribute to the teachers who taught their students to live full, creative lives and emphasizing that their future is whatever they choose to make it. Pamela was also involved in the Jesus movement. Now, this was a movement back in the early 70s, maybe late 60s. Uh, this was a movement that was non-denominational and largely comprised of younger people in response to the free love slash hippie era. It was started by the youth of the time, and it was also a way to counter the counterculture of sex, drugs, and rock and roll that was becoming very popular in the late 60s, early 70s. Pamela was described by many as a very religious girl who was devoted to her church and her faith entirely. And in fact, drove, and, and, and this is a cute car, she drove a, a red 1964 Pontiac Tempest with the license plate on the front that said Jesus in big, bold letters. And I will post the picture on Instagram, but it is a very distinctive car. And it also had a hubcap missing on the right rear wheel, which made it even more distinctive. So I want you to really think about this. She was a leader in almost every organization in which she was involved, church, community, and school. She excelled at nearly anything she put her hand towards. And to top it off, she was a pure soul by all accounts. Not one person has ever come forth and said she was anything less than the picture of the all-American girl. She was caring, ambitious, generous, and beautiful inside and out. She was every parent's dream. She was going to be a bright and shining star. In 1971, Pamela attended her freshman year in, at Indiana State University and decided to become an English teacher. Um, by the way, I attended my freshman year at that college as well. And pledged to the Sigma Kappa sorority. I wasn't a sorority girl. But she was, and she was very good at it. A photo of the new initiates uh, 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 to the sorority were featured in the Terre Haute Tribune on March 12, 1972, with Pamela sitting in the front row with nine of her sorority sisters. And it's easy to pick her out of the bunch because she's a very she has this very big, open, and inviting smile. Plus, her eyeglasses give her away every time. Uh, but she's very bubbly and cute. She was also on the dean's list that semester, and her sister Sheila was also on the high honor roll at the high school, receiving special honors at graduation. Yes, sir, it seems the Milam sisters had the world by the tail, and I can't imagine how proud her, their parents must have been. But I'm sure, as you're probably aware, the story doesn't have a happily ever after. You see, the next time Pamela Milam's name appears in the papers, it wasn't to announce another accolade. On the evening of September 15, 1972, the Sigma Kappa sorority was having its annual rush party, and Pamela was there that evening helping out with the festivities. The last time her sorority sisters saw her, she was leaving to go move her car shortly before the party broke up around 11 p.m. Reports in newspapers vary from some of the girls saying they just figured that she had just went home and she didn't live on campus, but she was staying in Lincoln Quad that weekend for rush activities to other articles saying that her friends asked a former ISU student named Steve Warham to go check on her car that following day. Her parents were worried about her when she didn't come return home that evening. And the next day, her father received a call from friends saying that they had found her car, but that it was locked and not in the place it normally was. And in fact, it was parked in a parking lot across from the Lincoln Quad in, you know, off campus. Her glasses were in the rear window shelf. They also said that she had told her that she was scared of having to park 
further away from the campus and didn't like to walk a long distance to her car. Her father and sister, Sheila, went to the site around 8.45 p.m., bringing the spare key for Pamela's car. When he arrived, they opened the trunk, which revealed every parent's worst nightmare. His baby girl, dead, bound, and gagged. Her keys were never found, but her purse was found uh, close to the crime scene, though it had been emptied. The initial articles reveal that Pamela had bruises on her face from a taillight fixture inside her car and state that she died from strangulation and that someone had used clothesline around her neck and wrists as though she were hogtied. She had been gagged with an excessive amount of tape. At first, it stated that her clothing was not must and there was no indications of violence, meaning they did not think that she was sexually assaulted. But this is where it gets vague because the articles go from stating that she was not sexually assaulting to uh, sexually assaulted to saying that there was a quote stain on her blue shirt to saying that she was indeed sexually assaulted but there's no indication as to how this discovery came about what information was released other than the obvious you know the autopsy revelations but even at that point they were still saying no there's no evidence of a sexual assault maybe that's something they were keeping close to the vest I don't know. But you see, the coroner initially said, like I said, there was no evidence of a struggle. She was fully clothed and not sexually assaulted. Both the rope and the tape were already in the car because those those were things that Pamela used uh, at the rush party. Other than that stain on her shirt, there was no physical evidence that would link anyone in particular to this crime. Pamela had no enemies, and as far as anyone could tell, no boyfriends or love interests, scorned or otherwise. At least that nobody ever reported it. Police said that she had no ties to the, quote, drug culture or hippie element on the campus. But barely three days had passed before a second student was attacked on the ISU campus. The Indianapolis Star reported that on September 19th, a student was walking on the east side of the campus around 10 p.m. when she was slashed across the back with a sharp instrument by a bike-riding teenager with fuzzy blonde hair. The police were also checking in the possibility of a link between Pamela's murder and a burglary that evening, that same evening that she was went missing, in the, in the building near the parking lot where the car was found. Again, the article states that Pamela was not sexually assaulted. But please keep in mind, this is also 1972 in Indiana, and around that time there were quite a few attacks on women, some that were murdered, and each of these had been looked at for a possible length. I mean, just across the board. They really had nothing else to go on. That same day that this article was published, funeral services were held at Washington Avenue Presbyterian Church for the popular college sophomore. She was buried at Mount Pleasant Cemetery in Terre Haute afterwards. Many of her sorority sisters and fellow students attended, as well as the ISU president and vice president, and several of her classmates served as pallbearers. Several people involved with the Jesus Movement also attended. Having to have a funeral service for such a beautiful, popular young woman in the prime of her life left most everybody there shocked and asking the same question, why? By September 20th, police doubted that the attack by the teenager on the second co-ed was linked to the case, but there was a case of what police called strikingly similar to the murder of, of Pamela Milam, and this was the unsolved murder of Vicki Lynn Harrell, which is still to this day unsolved. I'm really hoping that they would do the same DNA 
if they still have any evidence uh, for Vicky like they did for Pamela. I really hope that this is solved one day. On August 12th of the same year, Mrs. Harrell's body was found nude in the woods in an isolated area near Spencer, Indiana. She had been strangled uh, with rope and the initials K.N. scratched into her chest. At this time, they said there were discrepancies, and that being that Mrs. Harrell, who was divorced, had been raped and cut and had not been tied and bound. This was reported by the Rushville Republican, but almost all of the papers of the state, you know, publishes the exact same article. I mean, it was almost verbatim, word for word. Anytime a woman went missing or was found murdered around this time, Pamela's name was mentioned in an effort to find some sort of connection to possibly other murders of pretty young co-eds. As I mentioned before, this was a tumultuous time in our nation's history, just kind of like today. And most people who study true crime notice a spike in serial murderers around 1970s, 80s, around this kind of decade. The newspapers begin publishing photos of Pamela's car in an effort to find anyone who may have seen it between the time she left the party and the time her body was found in the trunk. You know, maybe somebody had seen it driving around the area. Many articles appeared with Pam's name attached. A man was arrested for burglary near the campus and police were asked if they were linked, but the police wouldn't say anything. Then a woman was found murdered in Florida in the same fashion that Pamela was, and the newspapers, perhaps in an effort to keep her name in the papers, pondered the similarities because one of the suspects was linked to Indiana. But the links were weak at best, and the investigation was still in the no-comment mode. Then on October 3rd, the Indianapolis Star published an article stating that state police had asked an Indianapolis forensic pathologist, Dr. James A. Benz, to perform a second autopsy. The first autopsy was reportedly incomplete, but by the time the request was made, the body had already been released to the family for burial, and the coroner denied knowledge of a second request. The article goes on to say that Dr. Ben stated that the state needs more medical examiners and that the average pathologist and medical doctor are not trained in skills required of a forensic pathologist or medical detective to make examinations of bodies to answer legal questions. That's, that's a mouthful, but you, you understand what I'm saying. Everyone was staying quiet about this. Campus police, co-eds, and state police were all instructed to keep their mouths shut until they had more evidence and more proof. At this time that this article was published, a full autopsy report had not been released. At the time of this article, the full autopsy report had not been released, and it was not a complete examination either, nor were the media allowed to see the death certificate. The family declined to allow a second autopsy as it would mean having to exhume her body. The Terre Haute Star also published a similar article the same day, but this is the first time the media says that, though there was no sexual assault, the coroner indicated that an examination of Pamela's clothing indicated that they, ha they may have been removed and carefully put back on, either by herself or someone else. An article published the following day by the same newspaper stated that the line of questioning that the police were employing on two young men brought in for questioning indicates that they were now exploring the possibility that she was a victim of a sexual attack of, quote, some kind. Police Chief James Swift expressed his concern that the media was contacting people outside of the department and taking what they said as fact instead of checking with the police, but in the same breath stated that the no-comment policy will remain in effect until the case is closed. 
On October 17th, the Terre Haute Star published an article saying that the Vigo School and Library Board approved a memorial resolution honoring Pamela Milam as she was a student librarian at the Southland branch. Then, nearly a month later, newspapers began reporting that around November 10th, a man was arrested and was being questioned in regards to abducting and assaulting two co-eds at Indiana State University earlier in the week. Because both incidents happened within blocks of where Pamela was murdered, he became a person of interest in her death rather quickly. At his arraignment, Robert Wayne Austin pled not guilty to counts of rape and kidnapping. His attorney told the press that he had nothing to do with Pamela's murder, stating that he was at a bar the night in question uh, that as that day was his birthday. No charges were ever filed against him for Pamela's murder, though he was charged with rape and kidnapping of those two other ISU co-eds. The media made it pretty clear that while police feel they know who murdered her, and they did believe he was their man, there was insufficient evidence to bring charges against anyone. But this is quite curious to me because up until this point, police and media were adamant they were about putting it out there that Pamela was not raped. Then, on December 2, 1973, the Terre Haute Tribune ran an article titled Seven Slangs Thus Far This Year in City. In the article, the writer mentions the murder of Pamela Milam a year before and says, and I'm quoting this directly from the article, In 1972, the most terrifying killing in many years occurred, the rape murder of Pamela Milam, an Indiana State University co-ed who was found bound and dead in the trunk of her car on a university parking lot in October. Um, excuse me? What? Rape murder? This was never clarified by media or law enforcement that I could find, and I scoured everything that I could. The case pretty much goes cold from this point, and nothing more is written about Pamela's death until 1975. And I'm going to tell you, this is one of the weirdest coincidences for me, because I had watched some true crime show. I'm always watching true crime shows. Um, that, but this one in particular, and I can't remember which one it was, but it talked about a really strange case out of Vincennes, Indiana, and I plan on covering it for a future episode because it was really bizarre, and this was the murder of 19-year-old Sherry Lee Gibson, and this brought to mind the murder of Pamela Milam, and the two cases were compared in the paper and the newspapers for a few days, but eventually the police said, nope, not related because the prime suspect in Pamela's death was already incarcerated when Sherry was murdered. It turned out that wasn't related, but they didn't know this, so they would have had tunnel vision on this one, regardless. But anyway, an article in the Vincent's Sun commercial again reiterates that Pamela was sexually assaulted. But again, I find no article that states why all of a sudden it's being reported as such. My personal belief is that once they locked their target on a convicted rapist, either they changed the narrative or decided to disclose the information to the public. But like I said, no explanation has been given that I could find. Without any physical evidence linking Austin to the crime, the case goes cold and no charges were ever filed against anyone. In 2001, police created a composite from the DNA, but it didn't match anyone in their database, nor did it match Robert Wayne Austin, so he was eliminated and was no longer a person of interest in the case. In 2008, Terre Haute Chief of Detectives Sean Keene decided to take the case himself. He worked the case over until he couldn't work it any further. He started using a composite image generated by the uh, Indiana State Police analysis of the DNA to weed out potential suspects, but little did he know the composite had generated the wrong hair and eye color. 
He pulled every arrest record from 1969 to 1974 and went through them by hand, but it led to nothing useful. They did testing on the ropes to the use to bind her, but it only confirmed that the killer had worked alone and there was nobody else helping. Ten years later, when the technology finally caught up in 2018, Keene, now the Terre Haute police chief, decided to take a chance and submit the very last bit of viable DNA left in the case to Parabon. The lab had had major success in identifying decades-old cases where the DNA sample wasn't found in another database in the country um, and simply by using genetic genealogy to identify potential suspects. This time the composite came back with a new image of the suspect, one with light hair and blue eyes, blue-greenish eyes, and identified a female cousin of the suspect located in Washington, Indiana, a small town just north of Evansville. From there, he was led to a widow and two children. After performing reverse DNA tests on the children of the suspect, it was determined that their father, Jeffrey Lynn Hand, had murdered Pamela Milam back in 1972. All right, guys, we're going to stop it here so that way I can get this episode out to you. This will be the end of part one. In part two, we're going to discuss a little bit more about who the hell was this Jeffrey Hand guy. I never heard about him until this case, and he could possibly have been a serial killer. Interesting. All right, guys, tune in next time. Have a great week. Be safe. Wash your hands. Wash your butt. And don't be a dick. Will a kind of